Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is about liver. In particular, polar bear liver. If you eat one, you're going to die. We don't handle vitamin A very well. You can have a little bit of it. In fact, I even recommend you have a little bit of preformed vitamin A, but too much of it's a bad thing. Vitamin A is a crucial building block for lots of animals. You need it for your eyesight, for reproductive tissues, for fetal development, for growing, for immunity, and even to form new cellular tissues. And the tolerable upper limit for healthy adults is set at about 10,000 IU, and people tend to show some toxicity at around 25,000 to 33,000 IUs. When you don't have enough of this stuff, you can find yourself facing symptoms just as bad as those that happen when you have too much of it. Deficiencies in vitamin A can cause dry skin, diarrhea, blindness, retarded growth, or even death. The funny thing is that polar bears themselves aren't immune to consuming too much or too little vitamin A. If they have too much, they get the same problems. If they have too little, they have the same problems. The difference they have is that they have a much higher tolerance if you compare a human liver, which has maybe 575 IUs of vitamin A per gram, with a polar bear's liver, you're going to see it has 24,000 to 35,000 IUs per gram, which is why you actually shouldn't eat polar bear liver. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. I just had a shot of espresso made with upgraded coffee beans, so I'm talking a little bit fast, and I apologize for that. But it's worth it because I needed to maximize my brain power for today's guest. He's a total badass. Who is this amazing badass we're talking about? This is a guy who, probably the only guy I can say, literally saved my career. And this is Steve Folks, who is the master of smart drugs, the author of Smart Drugs and Nutrients 2, he blogs at projectwellbeing.com, an executive director of the Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute. 
the CEO of Nanopolymer Systems Corporation, a co-founder of Vitamin Research Products, this company that introduced major nutritional products like DMAE, selenite, BHT, and tyrosine to the whole industry. These are things that you see written about all the time. I talk about using tyrosine. This is now 20-something years later. He has a bachelor's in organic chemistry. He's a former pyromaniac child. <laughs> the books he's written include Wipe Out Herpes with BHT. By the way, that rocks. The GHB book. And he knows something about Alzheimer's disease because his grandfather passed away from Alzheimer's. It helps that maybe he was a dentist and smoked and had emphysema that contributed. But Steve knows things that I don't know. And his influential newsletter series called Smart Drug News is what turned my brain on. When I first started having brain fog in my early 20s, I went to Alta Vista because Google wasn't really around then. And I found Steve's newsletters online. And I read every single one of them. And I bought the stuff he recommended. I had ordered it from Europe at the time. It turned my brain on enough to keep learning and to go down the path of biohacking. So Steve, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on the show today. You're welcome. It also helps that, Steve, you are a regular attendee and advisor to the Silicon Valley Health Institute, the anti-aging group that I'm the chairman of. Um, so every month, if you are in the Bay Area, on the third Thursday, you can go to Palo Alto at the community center there, and you can actually see Steve in real life. He has this aura around him that comes from all the smart drugs he's taken, and there's a circle of people asking him questions all the time. This is pretty accurate, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Maybe the aura I'm exaggerating. But he is an incredibly well-acknowledged expert and someone who's accessible to the community. And he runs Project Wellbeing Meetups as well. Uh, so, Steve, really, I'm, I'm in your debt. And I asked you to speak at the first biohacking conference that we put on uh, last year. And we'll be doing another one this year. And, of course, um, you're, you're perennially invited because you have this massive skill set. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you. It's great to be here. And let's have some fun. Uh, the reason I invited you on is that well, I think we could talk about like 50 things, but you are into hacking pH in a way that I'm not. You know, I, I take alkaline water, it gives me the runs, and I, I think a lot of the alkaline claims don't make sense to me. I'm like, the human body is a battery. If some parts are not acidic, they don't work very well. That would be your digestion. Um, other parts of you uh, need to be alkaline, and there's a delicate balance, and I think a lot of the marketing stuff I've seen, all the various things I've tried, haven't worked out that well, but I haven't tried your protocol. And you've given some fantastic talks about pH and circadian rhythm. So we're going to talk about acidity and alkalinity and get your take on it because you have the most rational scientific approach to this I've come across. And there's a lot of like woo-woo, you know, alkaline water blessed by fairies and stuff like that. So first off, you know, is fairy blessed water better? Uh, in my opinion, no. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, it might be to some people a slight source of reducing equivalence. So, you know, we live in an oxidizing environment and we need reducing equivalence to stay alive, but the problem with water is that it doesn't carry much. It's like uh, all voltage and no amperage. And therefore, if you put one drop of an oxidizing agent in it, the, the reducing power of the water disappears. So it, it, it really isn't the same thing as let's say eating a pineapple guava where you're going to get a gram of vitamin C and that that's going to have better um, reducing effects on your body or the alternative of eating MCT oil or coconut oil and having it rev up your mitochondria, which will produce reducing equivalents dynamically at the cellular level. I understood all of that, but I think everyone who's listening to the podcast right now, <laughs> driving in cars, uh, either ran into a median trying to think about it. <laughs> so... Let's break that down, uh, so to speak, um, electrically, and let's talk about why reducing matters to people, uh, and what. Just explain what reduction is in layman's terms, so we can start to talk about why alkaline water or other alkalizing herbs or diets might be helpful. Okay, uh, I think that that's easy to do with a temperature and color analogy. Um, that you know we live in an environment where the outside world is oxygen, it's an oxidizing environment, and you think of it as being hot, or think of it as being red, which would be a color of heat. And it's a fundamentally dangerous environment. When you go into our bodies and look at what happens down at the cellular level, it turns out that our bodies are cold and blue. 
and that there's that fundamental antagonism that we have to defend that we have to keep our body temperature cold in order to survive and that is the energy that we expend in our in our life we bring in fuel we burn it we get rid of co2 we use that energy to keep our bodies cool so that the oxygen in the atmosphere isn't dangerous it can be cleanly directed through the mitochondria to produce energy without damaging our dna our proteins our our minds uh you know other kinds of sensitive molecules in our body Okay, and the act of reduction there is, what are you doing specifically with the oxygen? Well, the, you're not doing anything with the oxygen so much as you're just channeling the oxygen in a way where the oxygen can't accidentally um, damage something that's critical, like your genes or uh, important proteins or um, structures in your mitochondria where you're generating energy. In a sense, um, you know, you can think of it as a kind of entropy pump where the universe is disordered and our bodies are ordered, and that's we're using that energy to create order. And so we're we're borrowing order from the universe to keep it in our bodies, and we're uh, dispersing disorder into the universe, and that takes energy to do it. And oxygen is the source of that energy. But because we are a highly reduced environment, we're very cold environment, a very blue environment, um, that surrounding heat, that redness and, and, and energy and heat is a potential threat to our systems. And so when we lose that ability to keep our bodies cold, we end up dying. And, you know, this is the process of life. We have to, we have to borrow energy from the world in order to keep our structure intact so that we have the the knowledge in our brains and the structures in our body and the health of our vascular system and et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that makes sense. And the act of reducing something there is basically maintaining that balance between the energy of oxygen and the destructive oxidizing nature of oxygen. Yeah, you can think of it as a refrigerator. Okay. You know, an antioxidant is like an umbrella that protects us from the sunlight. So. It doesn't really cool us, it just pre prevents us from heating up from direct sunlight. But um, the mitochondria are like a refrigerator. It's actually cooling our bodies down. And we need that refrigeration. If all we had was antioxidant protection, we would not survive. We need to have that actual drawing down of the temperature below baseline so that we can then cool off the hot spots of our body which would be caused by free radicals or by cosmic rays or by um, eating rancid fat or having an infection or being allergic to a wheat protein, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, so these are different environmental stressors. And what does an environmental stressor do to your pH? Um, well, it, typically it's an it's a acid stress. Okay, so an acid stress comes in, in, increases acidity of the body. And what impact does that have on our... You know, ability to stay cool, so to speak, but our, our ability to uh, to ef effectively operate as biological creatures. Well, we need to have a certain pH range in which we operate uh, for our cells to be healthy, and um, and it's it's somewhere around the vicinity of seven in terms of our body, and somewhere around the vicinity of six in terms of our urine, because our bodies do produce enough extra acid that we need to dump that acid in our urine. And so our urine shows a net acid influence from the pH of the rest of our bodies. Okay, so your, your blood and most of your meat should be around, and probably your saliva then should be around seven and your urine should be around six. That's right. Okay. And so by studying that dynamic, you can get some insight into how your metabolism is working. So for example, during the day, we run a, a, a large net acid production because our mitochondria are tuned up, um, our immune systems are highly active, we can run into things, we could get bitten uh, by you know, uh, insects and by, by snakes and, and lizards and spiders, um, and we could run into antigens, so uh, you know, viruses, bacteria, that kind of stuff. All of that requires us when we're out in the world to have a def an active defense mechanism, which is our immune system. And so our immune system is highly active during the day and it's driven by acidity. And our energy system, when it goes into high gear during the day, that produces a net of acidity. So 
that's part of our natural rhythm. And when that acidity is being generated, our kidneys are taking the blood that's going through and any extra acid is being generated and dumping it into the urine. Well, after the day is over, we go into nighttime mode. This is when we're sleeping and this is when we're repairing. We need to be alkaline at that time. So our energy systems drop down. So the acid that's being produced by our energy systems goes down and then our kidneys will start conserving acid to keep us balanced. So our urine will go from, let's say, five, which is, which is 10 times more acid than, than average, to pH seven, which is 10 times less acid than average. And so we can see this kind of tide where we swing from acid during the day to alkaline at night. And this is a natural rhythm. And if this doesn't happen, you are at risk for developing cancer and other degenerative diseases. That makes a lot of sense, Steve, and, and you know, the idea that that we're changing on a daily basis. I mean, we have almost every hormone that we have goes through a circadian rhythm, so why wouldn't our acid-alkaline balance? And probably also the our CO2 reserves uh, yes. also, which affect acidity very directly. You get those from breathing. Those also probably have a, a cyclical thing. Is it just directly tied to acid-alkaline, the way you're asking, or is your CO2 separate? Because like you, you breathe differently when you're sleeping, so your CO2 changes, or is that just a part of the acid of the body? Well, the, 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 the body balances its breathing based on pH control. On, on, you know, most people think, you know, since we're breathing oxygen and we need to have oxygen from the air, that our breath is controlled by regulating oxygen. Well, it, it isn't at all. Yeah. There isn't an oxygen sensor in the brain that's controlling our breathing it's actually controlled by carbon dioxide, which is the byproduct of oxygen. And so if your CO2 goes up, you tend to breathe more to get rid of it. And if your CO2 goes down, you tend to breathe less to conserve it. And that's all built into the wiring of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system. So what happens when I drink what I happen to be drinking now, San Pellegrino, which is relatively acidic, it's full of carbon dioxide, right? But it does have some calcium, magnesium, and some sulfide, sulfate in it. Um, what does ingesting CO2 through the GI tract do to this whole balance? Am I completely jacking it up? You are jacking up your CO2, absolutely. And this is a great self-care test to experiment with yourself, would be to look at something in your, in your life that would be directly related to CO2 levels. And my suggestion would be breath hold time. Mm -hmm. How long can you hold your breath? If you just take a deep breath and, and hold it, you know, when do you have to breathe? Is it 30 like, seconds later? Like six is it minutes. a minute later? Is it a minute and a half later? Yeah. You know, and that makes a difference because if your CO2 is low, you can hold your breath longer. It takes longer for your CO2 to build up because it's starting at a lower point. But if you drink a bunch of CO2 water or you take some baking soda that would have CO2 in it, raising your CO2 up, then you can only hold your breath for a short period of time before you hit that ceiling and, it, and the CO2 forces you to take a breath. It's interesting. I, I tend to have high CO2 in my blood. Um, I don't think it's from drinking Pellegrino. You know, a bottle a day isn't that much. But I, it's funny. I, I should be you know, excessively acid, according to most of the nutritional people telling us what to eat because I eat you know, meat and fat and all those coffee, all those evil things, bacon. But uh, I, I'm consistently alkaline uh, and to the point that if I take baking soda or even too much magnesium, I start panting at night. Like It, it doesn't feel good. Um, which is one reason that I'm kind of suspicious of these people who say, well, if you burn your vegetables and test the pH of the ashes, that's what happens in your body. Is, is there any rationale to that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that does happen. But the regulation of pH is, is a higher level function. And so, for example, if you are um, uh, parasympathetic, sympathetic balanced, and your heart rate variability is in the green zone. So what, what that means for people listening is we're talking about fight or flight response. That's so, right. So, so if you go into fight or flight response, that, that sympathetic activation that causes you to breathe more rapidly and to breathe shallow, and that blows off carbon dioxide, okay? So CO2 is, um, the CO2 release is dependent upon the style of breathing. So if you're breathing shallow, um, then you are uh, blowing off CO2. And if you're breathing slow and deeply, you're conserving your CO2. So being centered and not being nervous is actually, a, it influences your resting CO2 level. That's so why when you go high. into a doctor's office and you get a CO2 assessment, you're typically measuring yourself in a highly stressful environment 
the white coat syndrome. And so you tend to be breathing more. And in terms of driving through traffic to get there and, and waiting in the issue and being irritated because your appointment is you know 25 minutes late and these kinds of things, you will tend to blow off more CO2 and that'll influence your reading. So some of these kinds of tests aren't particularly useful, but when you take it into your own home and you start studying things like your breath hold time and how it responds to different things that you might do, you can actually learn a lot about what's going on with your metabolic rate. Interesting. So a potential biohack for people listening would be once a day when you wake up, when you go to sleep, hold your breath for as long as you can. But there's a training effect too. If you do that regularly, you would just get there better is. at it. But yeah, and I, I was a lifeguard and a swimmer in college and I could hold my breath for two minutes easily. And even though according to my metabolic type, I should have been able to hold it for 45 to minute, 45 seconds to maybe a minute, a little over a minute, I could hold it much longer because of that training. So the point is though, that it's not so much about how long you hold your breath, it's about how it changes dynamically for you. It's all about your, so if you can hold your breath for a minute and a half, then you're looking at you know only being able to hold it for a minute or being able to hold it for two minutes as being a significant change in your CO2 state. Whereas if you can only hold it for 30 seconds and going to 40 seconds is a significant change in your CO2 state. Okay, so then uh, is it because I'm too alkaline that I start panting uh, when I take baking soda or something like that? Literally, I, I feel like I just have to breathe really shallow, really fast breaths. Yeah, you're blowing off, well, no. That would just be CO2 loading. Okay, so I'm and adding- And you can load CO2 with baking soda and you can load it with carbonated water and you know one's alkaline and one's acid, but it's still a CO2 load. Oh, okay. So that would tell me that it's all about the CO2 for you. And you know, whenever you drink carbonated water or you're taking baking soda, you're just loading yourself up with CO2. Now, you could take an alkalinizing agent that didn't have any carbonate in it and see a totally different effect. Interesting. So I need to play around with that. What, what would an example of a non-carbonate alkalizing agent be? Uh, lemon juice. Okay. Yeah, um, or okay, um, so now isn't, some seaweed. Isn't lemon juice acidic? Well, it's acidic on your tongue and it's acidic to your stomach, but it's alkaline ash when it burns in your body. So um, that's, again, going to that kind of question. So mm -hmm. lemon juice would be tart in your tongue, and therefore you might think it's acidic, but it's not. And But the ash is very alkaline, but seaweed is even more alkaline than that, and that doesn't have any acid or alkaline taste to it at all. So if you... Put a pH meter in lemon juice, though, it actually is acidic. That's right. Right? So the body doesn't burn things. You know, if we did, we could eat candles and we'd be totally happy on that. So why does what, you know, a, a chemical reaction that doesn't happen in the body, we do that to lemon juice, why does that tell us what's going to happen in the body? Like, like I, I'm very skeptical that, that that's a reliable, 100% accurate indicator. Like, you burn your food and it's going to tell you what the food's going to do in your body because we don't do that. We burn food. Yeah, so you burn the carbohydrates in the in the citric acid, uh, things like that, in the lemon juice, and there's also other kinds of residues in the in the lemon juice that would be left over. So if you have, let's say, uh, potassium, that's going to change your pH. And so once the fruit acids are burned off, depending upon how they go, you're either getting an alkaline effect or an acid effect from it. Um, that will, the ultimate pH that you're left with is more about the ash than it is the pH of the food itself. Okay, so the point so there is... Let me give you an example. Citric acid, mm -hmm. very tart. Pucker your mouth yeah, big time. It's an acid. You rearrange the carbon and hydrogen atoms and you get sugar. Not tart at all. Right. right so the, the question there is you know, whether a combustion process with heat is leaving the same residue as a metabolizing process. and. and I've always been suspicious of that, but I've never had, you know, great evidence. Otherwise, it seems like, you know, the, the reactions that are driven by high temperatures when you burn something are just not like what happens in the body. So the residues would be different in the body. They are alike in terms of, you know, O2 and carbon in and, and hydrogen in and water and CO2 out. They're alike in that respect. But you're right in the sense that Let's say if you are anaerobically dominant at the time that a food comes in, the sugar is going to burn to lactic acid instead of burning the CO2. All right. And that's going to affect your, your pH balance because CO2 flows from the cell out into, through the tissue to your lungs 
and is efficiently mobilized and, 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 and flows from your body, whereas lactic acid comes out of your cells and sticks in your tissue and, and doesn't move very well. So that's your classic um, acidic American body type from the traditional Chinese medical you know, kind of message. And that's why most people will say, you know, alkaline, alkaline, alkaline is the, is the way to go. And, um, you know, they're not recognizing that they're only talking about one layer of the body. And under that layer and above that layer, you also have pH effects that are not at all connected to it. And it's not uncommon to see somebody with lactic acidosis on the tissue level have blood alkalosis. Interesting. All right. So, so now... I'm sure some people listening to this are you know, lactic, acetic, and, and their eyes are crossing because we're getting pretty pretty scientific pretty quickly here. Yeah, there's there's a point to all this though that's really worth understanding, and it's that you can measure your pH at different times of the day, and that's going to tell you tweaks you can make to your diet to increase your performance, increase how you feel, and increase even your health level. So, what's the best way that someone listening to the show could go out today or tomorrow? and measure their body's acid-alkaline balance, their pH. Um, what's your recommended method? Well, um, it's, not, it's not something that people should do if they're not really dedicated. Because when you want to measure your pH, because it's a dynamic rhythm, you need to measure it every time you pee, and typically for three to five days in a row, in order to be able to verify that the the, the acid and alkaline swings that are taking place on one day actually correlate with the swings the next day and the day after that. That in a sense, you're looking at your overall pH rhythm rather than looking at you know the fact that you had salad for lunch one day and chili for lunch the next day. It, it's sort of like, a, like when women track their morning temperatures for ovulation calculations. The day-to-day changes might not be that important, but you can tell when overall it's climbing or overall it's falling. So, yeah. so this is something for people who really are willing to spend a week understanding how their body works. But listening to the show, we have all kinds of people who, you know, they drink bulletproof coffee every morning because they feel better. They, you know, they wear a, a Nike fuel band or a basis band. You know, they're, they're doing all kinds of stuff because. They're willing to invest that. And you know, the kind of people who come to Silicon Valley Health Institute uh, meetings. So let's assume that people listening are willing to, you know, basically carry around a little bundle of sticks or something else, and every time they pee, measure it. Uh, what do you recommend? Is it a pee thing or is it a saliva thing? Well, I recommend um, urine just because I understand it better. And so if somebody does some urine measurements and they submit the data to me, I look at it and I can make sense of it faster. Got it. So okay. you recommend but people pee on a strip and write it down. That's right. And, okay. and, and track it over time. And if you collect your, data, your pH data on one side, you want to collect how you feel on the other side. You know, just, okay. you know, I'm feeling, you know, plus, better than average, you know, zero, neutral, negative, you know, worse than average, negative, negative. I'm really, you know, uh, can't get out of bed this morning. Th- that kind of data can help. And also tracking, you know, when you drink a cup of coffee, uh, when you eat a meal, whether the meal is high protein or low protein, whether it might contain, let's say, wheat and you might be allergic to wheat, all of these kinds of things can can be correlated with the urine pH changes so that you can learn by associating, you know, some prospective cause with an effect. Okay, okay. so this is all a learning process. Now, for those people who aren't willing to be, you know, to dedicate their life to this kind of thing, because, you know, carrying around pH papers with you all the day and, and having to think every time you need to go to the bathroom, oh, measure my pH, you know, and have a notebook to write it down. It's good I mean, for five days. I, I it's mean, a lot of overhead. Yeah. I mean, it, and if you're at work, you got a contract that's coming up, you got, you know, some deadline. How much of your coping power can you dedicate to this kind of thing can be a real challenge. But look, for those people who aren't, in that kind of position, there's a general rule about pH, and it has to do with how you um, handle your energy. Do you produce energy aerobically or anaerobically, which makes a huge difference on your pH control, and in terms of how do you handle alkaline food? Do you handle it gracefully, or does it derail you? So if you are Let's say you've got multiple sclerosis or some kind of autoimmune disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, and you eat something that's highly alkalizing 
it's likely to derail you. It's likely to make you feel really, really bad, especially if you do it first thing in the morning. And so that tells you that if you're paying attention to this, just not bothering to measure urine, but just paying attention to the kinds of themes that I'm describing, you can say, okay, I'm having a problem generating acid and generating energy. I'm, the energy I'm generating is going into lactic acid instead of CO2, and therefore the alkalinity that I'm putting into my body is overwhelming my, my it's not balanced with my acid generating system. So, so on the other hand, if you are aerobic, you're now, when you eat a high alkaline meal, your body can raise its energy level to balance it, and you can, it doesn't derail you at all, and you actually feel better. So for people who are, say, endurance athletes or people who are exercising a lot, then they're probably going to benefit more because they tend to be in an aerobic mode more often? They'll be in aerobic mode more often. Right. So then, so yeah, to be in aerobic, not anaerobic, yes. right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good okay. catch there. That, that could be off a little bit on, on the radio. Yeah, and those are, they're the kind of people who would thrive on a highly alkaline diet. They'd be able to eat fruit. They'd be able to eat veggies and, and raw veggies and lots of veggies they, because their aerobic capacity would be augmented by their exercise. So now here's the weird thing. The, the Bulletproof Diet recommends like 9 to 11 servings of vegetables. Like I eat tons of vegetables. And I've got like pro athletes, like world champions who are on the Bulletproof diet and it's totally upping their game, right? But, you know, they're eating tons of fat, like not these alkaline breakfasts. They're doing classic Bulletproof coffee, right? And coffee isn't considered an alkalizing food uh, last I checked, right? No, it is. Coffee is. It is. Highly alkalizing. It is? That's so interesting. It's a boomerang food. food, like chocolate. Yep. Coffee and chocolate have this two-hour acidifying effect and an eight-hour alkalinizing effect afterwards. Uh, see, I didn't know that about coffee. There's not a lot about coffee hacking I haven't read, but I would love to see like any data on that because that would be an amazing post. So, okay, so you get two hours of acidity in the morning, and that's going to probably make you feel good because you were turning on your acid in the morning because you wanted to essentially turn on your immune function and go out and seize the day. And then the alkaline there, is this is enhancing endurance, essentially? Uh, well, it can. Uh, there's some really interesting stuff that's been done by people who've been experimenting that they've shared this kind of stuff with me that if you if you approach exercise and, you know, people have a, 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 an inclination to exercise or not, if you're in an acidic state, you, you're inclined to exercise, you're in an alkaline state, you're inclined to just kick back and relax. And so what they found is that if you take something that's acidifying prior to exercise, you go into the exercise better. You, you initiate the exercise, you're more enthusiastic about it, but you also hit the wall faster. And so the people with the best results do acidification prior to exercise, and then immediately once they've started the exercise, they alkalinize at that point, and that gives them the stamina to withstand long-term exercise. Wow. Um, and you just got this from data because, you, you, I mean, you, you are like the master of biohacking, some of the stuff, stuff that I haven't done, like acid, alkaline, pH. Like I've played with it. I have a digital pH meter and all that stuff, but I've never graphed it out like you have. So uh, so this is where that data comes from. There isn't like a formal study of that. Wow. No. All right, let, let's but talk. You, let, you let's, know that there, there is from the perspective of lactic acidosis as a pathology associated with long-term exercise. Right. So people hit the wall. They, because they, 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 they run through the burn through their glycogen, they hit the wall before their fat burning turns on, or they get the burn that happens from lactic acidosis. And these kinds of things are recognized as, yeah. you know, encumbering factors for people working out and especially peak performance. Wow. This is a totally, I've never seen this published anywhere. The first time I've seen it in public thing about coffee and that's, that's really cool, Steve. Uh, how, I have to I have to learn more about this, but we probably don't have to dig in further on that one on the show. But that does explain why you know, some of these incredibly high performance athletes are are really into it. What about uh, using brain octane, or the, the the extra short MCT oil, or even just regular MCT oil uh, at different times of the day? Does your, your acid alkaline circadian rhythm affect? what the best times are to take something that's going to give you more BHB, coenzyme A, and ATP? Yes, absolutely. And, and so that would make a difference, for example, in terms of your, um, your bulletproof coffee. 
where you're getting butyrate or MCT oil in it, depending upon whether people are using butter or not. Um, and that will rev up your metabolism and helps shift you from a low energy, low metabolic state at night when you're sleeping into a high energy state of the day. So there's that transition from alkaline to acid, from low metabolic rate to high, from low CO2 to high CO2 that can be facilitated. And so, you know, it matters for you whether or not you are in tune with that process or that process is late. If you're a night owl, for example, that process is gonna be delayed two to four hours. So when you wake up in the morning, you're still metabolically kind of asleep. And that's that, you know, groggy, you know, oh God, I gotta get out of bed where you need an alarm clock and that kind of thing. Then you have the opposite people who are the, the, the morning larks that just pop out of bed, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. Those people, Those people making, yeah, don't no prejudice on this show, right? Okay. <laughs> Those people are making that transition from alkaline to acid in the late stage of the morning before they're actually waking up. And so they pop out of bed. And for those people, you have a totally different pH pattern. Their acid momentum is fully developed, whereas a night owl type, it's retarded. So, so if you're a, an early morning catching worms kind of person, what's the best time to drink your bulletproof coffee? Um, it, it might be uh, never. No, don't say that, Steve. No, okay, so these are people who, who might not benefit from coffee at all. They're naturally doing bulletproof without the coffee. Okay, you know? from and there's CO2 perspective, right? But what about like the anti-inflammatory yeah. stuff that's present in there, the polyphenols and all those things? And, well, and yeah, okay. it probably would be best to spread it out throughout the day because their acid momentum is already going. Well, well let's, uh, let's actually yeah. separate it out. Okay, there's, there's coffee, there's butter, and then there's MCTs. So I, we could talk about those different components. So let's say that you're one of these people and that you've peed on a stick for a while and that you, you tend to be acidic when you first wake up in the morning, you wake up at 6 a.m. and you're ready to seize the day, you go to sleep at 8 p.m. because you, know, you turn into a zombie at night. Okay, so you're like the opposite of me. Um, so if you're one of those people, what's the best time for butter, best time for MCT, best time for coffee? I would say later in the day, um, I would either be lunch or dinner. Okay, so these guys might actually, this is interesting. So if you were gonna do, like, I think you know about the bulletproof intermittent fasting. The idea that when you start your fast, zero protein, zero sugar, just bulletproof coffee in the morning, and then you just don't care about food. So these guys might actually benefit by having a full breakfast and then doing or or an alkalizing breakfast. Because sure. let's say if your if your rhythm is is shortened, instead of having a twenty five hour biological clock like you or me, they have a twenty three and a half hour biological clock. So they tend to fall asleep in, you know, in front of the television at night or you know, a little bit earlier every night. And so for them, going to sleep is not the problem. The problem is they wake up at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. You know, they're, just, they're just too much. So they want to lengthen their day. So when they're swinging acid in the morning, if they have fruit for breakfast or veggies for breakfast, they eat, let's say, some spinach for breakfast, that's going to bring down their pH and extend their day. But wait, how is fruit? going to do that to their pH. I, I thought fruit was it's, supposed to be It's an alkalizing influence. Right, That's but aren't, aren't they already, aren't they already, or I guess they're super acidic, so you want to no, blunt. They have acid momentum, okay, so okay. they're stacking an alkaline food on it. So, for example, somebody who wanted to do um, something that wasn't with sugar could do uh, milk for breakfast because okay. milk protein is an, an, tends to be an alkalizing protein, or they could do uh, beans for breakfast where the, the bean is an alkalizing source of protein, ignoring the leptin and other, you know, <laughs> all the reasons you shouldn't eat beans and milk but, protein. <laughs> you know, so I'm just talking about yeah, it I get at it. a superficial level, and the body, of course, is three-dimensional instead of one-dimensional, uh, yeah. but okay. This is just an acid-alkaline discussion, right? Yeah, you're, That's I, right. I get it. Uh, so I, I still stand and say that milk protein, and at least most milk protein outside of certain whey, and, uh, and beans are generally not the best foods for the human performance. Uh, but uh, I, your point there about eating something different in the morning could make uh, could make a lot of sense. So you're one of these people, and you wake up in the morning, you want to add alkalinity, but you want to stay in ketosis because we know that ketosis increases brain function, it's anti-aging, and it's basically the cool state to be in at least five days a week. So if you want to do that and you want to have an alkalizing breakfast, what do you do? I eat some raw greens. Raw greens, okay, but I mean, you're getting all that uh, oxalic acid, you know, 
raw mm-hmm. spinach leaves a film on the back of your teeth, which is your body trying to dump those extra acids, like like you know, a kidney burden, kidney stones, all that stuff. You can do um, a, a green juice. Okay, green juice. Why wouldn't you just take a little bit of baking soda and then drink your bulletproof coffee and be done with it? Well, because bullet, because baking soda is a shallow alkalinizing agent. Oh, it's not deep. You want to affect your rhythm down at the cellular level, you know, deep in your body where your biological rhythms are, are less superficial. Okay. So this is something that I, I don't know about, the, the depth of alkalizing, like from a cellular biology perspective. And so uh, this is one of those reasons that, you know, People saying you know, alkalize or die or whatever. You, you look at that stuff and you're like, okay, you want to be alkaline? You can be alkaline like that. So what's an example of a deep alkalizing chemical or supplement? Um, potassium would alkalinize at the cellular level. Sodium would alkalinize at the blood level. Okay. So uh, Cesium would be a deep oh, yeah. alkalizing agent at the mitochondrial and, and nuclear levels. All right, so now I'm going to just pull out the biohacking big guns. I, I used to take liquid cesium, by the way. You, so you're like, okay, I'm, I'm a world-class athlete. I wake up at 6 in the morning, and, you know, and I want to you know, shred mountains or whatever. So I'm going to wake up, and I'm just going to pop a, ce- a cesium a capsule or take you know, an ounce of cesium liquid, which is the stuff I had. Uh, so I'm going to make myself super alkaline, uh, even though I'm in the middle of this acid phase, uh, and I'm going to you know, chug my coffee or eat my bacon because I want to stay in ketosis. Uh, and I'm going to you know, go, go win. Is that going to work? Well, if you don't overdo it. I mean, there, this, I mean, you need to have an acid momentum in the morning. And you need to have acid momentum when you're initiating exercise. Got it. So and if so you, if you, you don't want to sledgehammer okay. it when a, a ball-peen hammer will work just fine. Got it. So... Uh, I, now I, you've got me wondering, and so far, the most effective thing I've, ha- I've seen for, I would say, 95% of the people that I've worked with and feedback I've had is Bulletproof Coffee in the morning. It, is, it, it rocks people's entire day, and, and it's kind of mind-blowing. Uh, and I've had a, a few people who they don't handle the MCT very well in the morning. Um, it, it gives them GI dysfunction. And a couple people who've said, uh, I get a racing heartbeat from it. And for those people, they're always on thyroid meds and they always end up needing to reduce their thyroid meds because their mitochondria is working better. So if someone's listening to this and you know, they, they do this regular practice and they feel good on it, how should they know how to tweak it other than if they don't want to walk around peeing on sticks for five days? Is there, is there an obvious way to know this? Well, uh, no. I mean, I, I, mean I, I certainly don't know that kind of uh, simplistic formula for it because on some level, you don't know whether or not your racing heart is reminiscent of thyroid or not, unless you've experienced that and you, yeah. you say, oh, that, 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 that I know what that is because I've been there and it's not some you know, life-threatening thing where you panic and go to the emergency room. The, the, two, so, pe- the two people it's happened to, have, have they, they knew they were on thyroid meds. They said, oh, this is a thyroid problem. They backed off on the thyroid and like, wow, I suddenly cut my medication. Okay. Well, that, that they're probably way more astute than the average person on thyroid meds because a typical person who goes to a doctor and gets a thyroid prescription, they get a dose and then 30 days later they come in and the doctor goes, you know, how are you doing? And they goes, no. And so, okay, you know, things are, you know, they measure the thyroid and they're okay. And they never know what hyperthyroidism feels like. And so they're just, you know, they're as much in the dark as people who are not taking thyroid. I, I have a confession to make, and I'm going to tell you this because you're going to laugh at me. <laughs> I'll laugh at you in advance. <laughs> there we go. So I, about a year ago or so, I, uh, I tweaked my anti-aging testosterone dosage. And I keep my levels in the normal levels where they should be. I'm not like super juicing or any, any of that weird weightlifting stuff. I'm, you know, made anti-aging kind of, kind of thing. And I've been doing it for 10 years, and everyone knows I'm public about it. So um, I, had, I had tweaked it you know, with the help of a doctor, and it activated my thyroid more. At the same time, I was doing a photo shoot for Creative Live, this big course I taught, and I had to hold a, a, a plank pose on the whole body vibration plate, you know, the Bulletproof Vibe, for five minutes so they could get the right picture. And if you've never tried doing a plank pose on a whole body vibration plate for five minutes, it is an enormous metabolic load. And I ended up getting... Um, basically soreness on my sternum from the vibration of the ribs in my sternum. So I had chest pain, a lot of chest pain. At the same time, my thyroid dose cranked up. So I had chest pain centered on the left side and I had 
thyroid arrhythmia. And my wife's an ER doctor, and she's like, I think you should go to the ER for that. I'm like, oh, man. So I'm sitting there, and they stuck these electrodes all over me, and I'm like, it was my thyroid medication. I feel like such a doofus. So thus are the dangers of biohacking. Well, that's true. And, <laughs> and you know, everything that you learn, well, let me put it this way. Most of the lessons that are most precious that you learn are the result of a mistake. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, another yeah. common mistake is uh, disaster pants. Uh, you take way too much of the MCT oil, particularly, less so for the brain octane. Um, you will really be friends with the bathroom for a little while, but you also learn your tolerance for it. And you learn how much to put in your coffee to feel good. So, all right, let's talk intermittent fasting. Do you use intermittent fasting? Do you recommend it? What does it do for acid alkaline, stuff like that? I do, but I don't recommend it because of the acid alkaline thing, but um, because, you know, natural humans were constantly being, uh, were fasting constantly because of a lack of food availability. And since we don't have that, you know, imposed upon us, we have to impose it upon ourselves. So the whole idea that the human animal is given to adapt to some steady state of, of life, I think is a, is a fiction of modern society. And that when people were alive in the old days, you know, um, let's just pick, you know, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 years ago, food was a iffy thing. And so we were constantly going in and out of ketosis. We're constantly being aerobic and anaerobic. We'll have episodes where we're running away from a bear and climbing a tree. And then other times when we'll be kicked back and partying. Right. And so making your life more like that is beneficial because you get hormetic a hormetic change for different things. I, that's right. I get it, it there. You know, that that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, that's not necessarily true, but that that challenges you does tend to make you stronger. And therefore, the more kinds of challenges you have in terms of, you know, high protein, low protein, no protein, high carb, low carb, no carb, you know, kind of things. And, yeah. and, and you know, going through autophagy as a, you know, when you, when you have no protein available and all you're eating are greens that you can harvest as you're hiking through a mountain pass, you know, those are the kinds of stresses that humans would have. And that every time you do that, you're, you're, you're pinning your metabolism up against a wall and inducing an adaptive response. Yes. And the same thing happens with pH. We have buffering systems in our blood. Our blood pH is highly constrained. And so we have these two buffering systems, alkaline buffering and acid buffering, that are, that are oriented like this, which keep our blood very, very tight. Now, if you are in a an environment where you're eating an acid-loading diet, your alkaline buffering system is on all the time and your acid buffering system is weak. And if you then switch to a highly alkalinizing diet, it switches the opposite way. So the buffering systems adapt to the kind of stresses that they have to manage. It kind of like if you only get to eat something for a while, your body will adapt to digesting and eating that food and that's how it is. So one of the reasons that the new bulletproof diet infographic includes uh, the idea of a day of protein fasting is exactly that you want autophagy and you just you want to shake things up it's the same reason that years ago i used to try and be in ketosis all the time and not only does that suck because you don't get to eat some very delicious foods but uh it's actually not that good for you compared to cyclical ketosis which is yeah. you know, where the diet evolved and that's you know, what i'm recommending to people today and the, the differences they have are, are pretty significant mm -hmm. And I agree, and I would even say that that even though it's more convenient for us to pick a once a week breaking of ketosis or a twice a week breaking of ketosis, that in that would never be that ordered in real life, and that it might even be better to say, okay, this week I'm going to break ketosis twice, and then I'm going to go for two weeks without breaking it at all, you know, and you know, on my birthday I'm going to drink single malt, and therefore I'm going to break it, you know, on that day just because I haven't had single malt in a year. And so, you know, you're, 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 you're playing to that part of your mind that would otherwise be yammering at you, you know, go for this. And you're just, you're just giving it a day when it gets to play so that it shuts up the rest of the time. You know, there's a lot to be said for that, especially midwinter. You know, when it's cold and dark, you probably ought to be in ketosis most of the time. In summer, less so. And besides, the peaches are ripe. Like, you know, okay, fine. Did you have some fructose those days? you know, get a little advanced glycation in product and raise your triglycerides. Yeah, probably, but it was worth it, right? <laughs> See, it's never, it's never dark in winter in my life because I have red light therapy that I do to encourage the uh, early morning and late, you know, evening, the dusk and dawn effect 
So I'm I'm adding to that kind of effect so that I don't have the the, the darkness issue. Well, let's say you just said red, not blue, and it's kind red. of funny. I was reaching for my remote control. I have uh, bright red LEDs on right now that you see. This side of my face is kind of reddish, so I I typically have red lights on all day. But I use this uh, my thousand watts of halogen light. So I'm like, hey, That's buddy. Blue. It's like daytime, so I've got blue here, and the red's on until I go to bed, but it's on all day too. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so let's. Talk. So the, the light spectrum does shift from red dominance in the morning to blue dominance in the day to red dominance in the evening, and so I just encourage that so that the the issue of the photo period adjusting around me doesn't end up you know giving me seasonal affective you know effects. You know what? We're going to talk some more about what color light when because. We actually haven't even announced this yet. So we're doing a double podcast with Steve today because Steve is just so knowledgeable. What we're going to do now, Steve, is we're going to uh, end this episode. And everyone listening, go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. And next one in a few days is going to be part two with Steve. And he and I are going to continue talking. We're going to cover what color lights you should have when, and I'm going to tell you how for 30 bucks you can get exactly this in one fixture that even looks kind of cool. It's dirt cheap, easy to do, and it actually affects all kinds of systems in the body. So we're going to talk about some light hacking, uh, which is why Steve is, is awesome. We just talked about peeing on strips, what time of day to eat your coffee or to eat breakfast, and now we're talking about lights. And I'm telling you, Steve can not only keep up with me on all this biohacking stuff, he can run circles around me. So you're going to hear all that. Just stay tuned. Come back in about three days when we post the next episode. Thanks, Steve. We'll ask you the top three in the next episode. If you've been listening to this podcast and you're wondering where to start, why don't you just jump in with both feet? Check out the Bulletproof Total Upgrade Kit, which is available on UpgradedSelf.com. The Bulletproof Total Upgrade Kit includes just about one of everything that you would want to have to get started on making Bulletproof Coffee, on reducing your aging using our upgraded aging formula, on helping your body detox better and think better using glutathione force, as well as our very high quality upgraded collagen protein. So try it all together, save a ton of money, and feel what it's like to be Bulletproof. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.